everybody i'm raj i'm eri and this is blood cancer talks blood cancer talks is a podcast that's exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring in content experts who live and breathe a particular disease or a particular treatment area and we delve into the biology and clinical management as we know car t cell therapy has changed the landscape of treatment of several hematologic malignancies and as hematologists we have struggled to manage the acute and late toxicities of car t cell therapy and some of the acute toxicities being cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity especially because there is not a lot of randomized controlled trial data in this area so today we have an exciting episode in store for you we have dr michael jain who is an oncologist at moffit cancer center at tampa florida who is an expert in all things car t cell therapy and we will discuss how to manage the acute toxicities of car t cell therapy so before we jump in dr jain can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what your clinical and research focus is Sure. Well, first off, thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoy the podcast, and so it's a real honor to be here talking to you guys. So, as mentioned, I'm an oncologist at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, and we have a really large CAR T cell program. And I'm the medical director of the immune and cellular therapy program, or we call it the ICE T program. And we treat a lot of standard of care CAR T cell patients, a lot of clinical trials in cellular therapy. My background is I was actually did all my training in Canada, and I came to Florida about six years ago. And my background is in treatment of hematological malignancies and stem cell transplantation. Sounds good. So we'll jump right in. So we'll start with the case, and then as we go along, we'll discuss the various complications and how we manage those complications and go over the data. So, a 68-year-old male with mantle cell lymphoma presents with disease relapse following second-line ibrutinib, and thereafter he is aphorized and receives third-line CAR T cell therapy with brexacil or Tecartus, which is FDA-approved right now. He is now day plus two post CAR T cell infusion. On rounds, it's noted that he had two episodes of fever overnight. One of them was 101 degree Fahrenheit, and the other one was 101.8 degree Fahrenheit. So, real fever. and his systolic blood pressure is in the 80s and his baseline systolic blood pressure being in 120s to 130s he got some iv fluids overnight and that led to improvement in the blood pressure to high 90s low 100s on exam he was also noted to be a bit drowsy and fatigued but otherwise alert oriented so with that case in the background dr jain can you tell us a little bit about what is cytokine release syndrome and what are the key cytokines that play an important role in the pathophysiology of cytokine release syndrome sure so cytokine release syndrome was described prior to there being car t cell therapy other therapies such as bispecific antibodies or even during haploidentical transplant can cause cytokine release and you know by the name what we see is the release of multiple cytokines usually pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL6 and IL1 and these cause systemic effects on the body and as you noted in this case usually fever is the first thing that we notice so after car t cell therapy the thing to know about is that the car t cells themselves are releasing cytokines you know as they're expanding and growing inside the patient these cytokines help the car t cells grow and they're kind of part of the normal t cell biology but actually the vast majority of the cytokine release or at least the ones that we think are related to the toxicity probably aren't entirely due to the car t cells themselves we think that myeloid cells and other cells all over the body in your spleen and in your tissues and in your bone marrow and in the tumor microenvironment these are amplifying the car t cell cytokines so one thing to know is that the car t cells are i like to liken it or maybe like the match and you know the rest of the body systemic inflammatory state is like the gasoline and so that's what really drives and sustains the majority of the cytokine release 
Right. So do you check any particular cytokines or any particular inflammatory marker during the acute phase of CAR T cell therapy in routine practice? And if so, you know, which one do you check and how often? Yeah, I think it'd be really wonderful if we could measure all the different cytokines after CAR T cell therapy. But unfortunately, outside of IL-6, which is done at some centers in real time, most of those panels take a while to come back. And by the time you get the results back, they aren't really real time anymore and don't reflect the patient's clinical condition. So most of us follow fairly standard things like ferritin and CRP. They go up and down in a fairly stereotyped way and are broadly reflective of activated cytokines. So let's say if you're following CRP and the CRP suddenly goes up on day two, even if let's say the patient did not have any fever. So that would prompt you to maybe closely monitor the patient for development of CRS, I would imagine? Yeah, so I think the the thing to think about is that, you know, I like to tell the patients that we think that there's some action brewing. So we see that the inflammatory cytokines are going up a little bit. And then I can say, you know, maybe you'll have a fever today or perhaps the next day. So the cytokines or the ferritin and CRP seem to track a little bit the beginnings of these effects. One thing to know, though, is that ferritin and CRP are a little bit different. CRP can be pretty easily suppressed by steroids, whereas ferritin seems to be more long-term and is harder to suppress. So sometimes the ferritin is a better indicator of kind of the overall inflammatory state, whereas the CRP you know, may go up and down more rapidly. Yeah, that's a really important clinical pearl because we are usually seeing those labs every day in the morning. And I think it's important to understand how to interpret it. So what are the predictors of CRS with CAR T-cell therapy? And are those predictors fairly uniform across tumor types or do certain tumors stand out with certain predictors? Yeah, so things have changed a lot on, for example, our inpatient service. Now there's multiple different types of CAR T-cells treating multiple different types of diseases. And each one is a little bit unique in terms of when do this toxicity start? How severe do we think these toxicities are going to get? But as you point out, there are some general principles that we think about. So I like to break patients into two big buckets. Like, is there a patient that's at low risk of getting severe versions of these toxicities? Or are there patients that are at high risk of these toxicities? And the ones who are at high risk, I think, are, as we mentioned, ones who have sort of a high baseline inflammatory state, high ferritin and CRP. And this is generally related to having a high tumor burden. So the higher the tumor burden is, whether that's in myeloma or in lymphoma or in ALL, the higher the number of blasts or the size of the tumors that there are, the more likely you are to have CRS and ICANs as a consequence of the CAR T-cell therapy. And then other things that matter is sort of the aggressiveness of the malignancy. We know that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is aggressive, generally has more CRS associated with it than, say, follicular lymphoma. We know that, for example, myeloma has a lower rate of having severe CRS as well. And then another thing that's come up is that we do think that the CAR T-cell product matters. And so it seems like products that are co-stimulated by, for example, CD28, such as oxycaptogene cellulose or Axicel, these products tend to have more rapid onset and more severe cytokine release syndrome than products that use 4-1-BB, such as genlecleucel or, or lysocaptogene merileucel. But it should be noted that regardless of the CAR T-cell product you use, patients still can have severe versions of these toxicities. So that each one of these things is not an absolute. It's just a way of thinking about the patient. So the patients that I worry about the most have aggressive malignancies like ALL or DLBCL, have really high tumor burdens and often high ferritin and CRP coming into the therapy. And then ones that we're treating you know, as well with either Axicel or even ALL with 4-1-BBs. These are the patients that I, that I think about of it being high risk. That's a, yeah, that's a really good framework. Now we'll switch to the CRS grading. As you know, there have been so many different CRS gradings over the years. When I was a fellow, there was the Lee criteria, the UPEN grading, and then subsequently the CAR talks, MSKCC, and then most recently is the ASTCT grading. 
which is being widely used both in clinical trials as well as in routine practice. So can you tell us what are the key components of ASTCT grading are? And when you are listening to a presentation by a trainee, for example, in inpatient rounds, what are the key pieces of information that you're trying to get from the presentation to decide in your mind what grade the CRS is based on ASTCT grading? Right. So I think the thing that the ASTCT grading tried to do is really just simplify things. So they said, look, you have CRS if you have a fever. And, you know, sometimes it's people think that, oh, you have to have an active fever at the time you're having some of the other symptoms, but that's not necessarily true. I, I tell my trainees that you have to have a fever at some point to get into the CRS game, but just because the fever has gone away doesn't, and you're having these severe toxicities, doesn't mean that that's no longer CRS. But what the grading system did was simplify all of the different organ toxicities. You know, if you look at some of these pictures and review articles where they show the entire body of a, of a cartoon and they say, oh, it could affect the brain or the liver or the kidneys, the ASTCT grading criteria tried to simplify all that. And they said, look, the main things that we know happen in conjunction with or primarily in most patients are fever, hypotension, and hypoxia. And I have to say, even hypoxia is probably more often seen in pediatric patients than adult patients. So really what we're talking about is fever and hypotension, although hypoxia is in the grading. So, you know, I tell my trainees, look, if you're, you're in the CRS game, once you have a fever, so every toxicity that you have, you know, sort of temporarily short, shortly after that, we can attribute to CRS. And then we're really looking for hypotension. And then the grading kind of follows from whether or not, you know, you needed, you have hypotension makes you grade two. And if you need a presser, then obviously you have severe toxicity. Anyone who needs a presser has a severe problem. So I think that that grading did a really good job of simplifying what the best way is to, to think about these toxicities. So basically fever, hypotension, hypoxia, I think that's a, yeah, a really good framework to remember the ASTCT grading. And variable that was present in older grading systems, for example, you know, organ toxicities like transaminitis or elevated creatinine, and they are no longer there in the ASTCT grading system. Do you still look at those when you are in the rounds with such a patient with suspected CRS? Do you look at those to make up your mind about the severity or do those not factor in your decision making? Right. So obviously these other things are happening and the authors who wrote the ASTCT criteria speculated that most times these things occur, you know, at the same time as the hypotension or the hypoxia. And so they don't necessarily add that much to the grading, but we have had some patients that have these toxicities in the absence of hypotension. For example, I can think of a notable patient who actually had rhabdomyolysis and ended up on dialysis and didn't have hypotension, you know, part of it. And so one of the things I kind of think about when I think about whether I'm going to treat CRS or, or other aspects of this is, you know, what is the ability of the patient to tolerate CRS? And the more fragile a patient is, the less CRS they can tolerate. And when you start seeing these other organ systems becoming dysfunctional, it kind of tells you about the evoked fragility of the patient. If someone's creatinine has gone way up, um, you're worried that their kidneys are going to have an irreversible damage. And so I do consider these things as being a reason to treat them, but formally speaking, I don't put them into the grading system. You know, it's a clinical grading system, so we have to apply a number, but the number shouldn't always determine whether or not you're going to treat a patient to try and minimize their toxicity. Yeah, that's great. We're, we're about to jump into treatment, but I've got a couple of other things I wanted to ask before we do that. Do you get, do all the different types of CAR-T trigger CRS at the same time, or do you have different kind of timings that you look for CRS depending on what what CAR-T they've received? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the really interesting that's happened has been in the treatment of myeloma with CAR T-cell therapies. And there, there are two products. They're both BCMA-directed. They are both 4-1-BB co-stimulated. But the antibodies that they use to bind the BCMA are slightly different. And for whatever reason, the IdaCell product tends to have CRS pretty early after you infuse the cells. So that happens, you know, perhaps a couple of days after. And we admit all these patients before for their CAR T-cell therapy. But another treatment, which is Siltacel, which as mentioned, is very similar in a lot of the ways of CAR design. What we've noticed is that most of these patients don't start having any CRS until perhaps a week or even later after the CAR T-cells therapy is infused. And so rather than have these patients wait around for a week in the hospital, we've been treating these patients as outpatients, and then we bring them into the hospital once they have a fever. So the kinetics of the CRS start can vary a lot between products, but they may vary a lot between patients. On the clinical trial, some patients, the majority of patients would have CRS, for example, in lymphoma within the first few days, but there were patients who had CRS onset later on, usually not many weeks later, typically within the first couple of weeks. But these are the sort of things that we don't understand why some patients behave this way, but it's, it's certainly something that happens. And is there any connection between CRS and efficacy? Do you tell your patients that you're happy that they've developed CRS because it means that the, the T cells are, are doing their thing or, or you think that, that you, you don't kind of stress if there's no CRS and then you haven't seen so much of a connection there? Yeah, so I work with a group called the U.S. Lymphoma CAR-T Consortium and we're 17 centers. And we took a look at this based on our retrospective data. And we compared patients who had grade zero CRS to patients who had either grade one to two CRS or more severe CRS, grade three to five. And it looked like there was a sweet spot. Patients with grade one to two CRS had the best long-term outcomes. And patients who had grade three to five CRS, interestingly, the worst CRS, their efficacy outcomes were poorer. They had more incidents of relapse, perhaps because there are overlapping reasons for CAR-T failure in terms of efficacy, as well as causing toxicity. The group that you're referring to had grade zero CRS, and their long-term efficacy was a little bit lower. And when you say grade zero, you mean no CRS? No fever. Yeah, no fever. Yeah. So they could have had, I guess, 37.5 fever or something like this, but but no you know, real gradable CRS. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at these patients, as you mentioned, who had no CRS, their outcomes, their efficacy outcomes were just slightly lower than the patients who did. So I tell my patients, look, still there are a lot of patients who got long-term durable remissions who had no CRS whatsoever. And so it's not necessarily a, a factor that means that the CAR T cells didn't work because that's what people are always trying to divine while they're sitting in the hospital waiting. Absolutely. You know, that's that's a very good way of thinking about it. So let's chat about the management of CRS now. So the patient that we mentioned before had grade two CRS, fever and hypotension without uh, requiring vasopressors. How would you manage this patient? Right. So the management of CRS and ICANs, I I tell my uh, fellows and the people working with me, look, there are two drugs, you should use them. And I should amend myself. There's three drugs now. We've added anakinra, but the two drugs really are tocilizumab and, and dexamethasone or steroids. And so the way that I think about patients who have CRS really is, as I mentioned, I bucket the patients into whether I think that they're really high risk of getting a severe toxicity of this CRS progressing to something much worse, or whether I think that they're at low risk of it causing them any problems over time. And in general, the patients that I think are low risk, I try not to teach to treat them very much for their CRS. I kind of let them have fevers and other things like that for a while. Whereas the patients who are at higher risk of it progressing to more severe disease, more severe toxicity, those are the ones that I tend to intervene earlier. Now, I think everyone is going to intervene at grade two CRS, such as in this patient. But the way that I would think about it is for us, we would, and I think everyone would give them tocilizumab at least, you know, one time to see what would happen. 
But if this was a patient that, for example, had really bad mantle cell lymphoma, blastoid, really high tumor burdens, high inflammatory markers coming in, with the first dose of tocilizumab, I might give them also 10 milligrams of dexamethasone at the same time, perhaps one or two doses of that if I was really worried about where the direction of this was going. So that's sort of how I titrate using those two therapies in their initial management. And do you have kind of Jane's scoring system for deciding who's a low risk and a high risk, or it's kind of a, you combine the factors that you, we discussed earlier and kind of a general gestalt of, is this person low or high risk? And you kind of slide your threshold in the grade one crowd for, for treatment based on that. Yeah. So in diffuse large B cell lymphoma treated with AxiCell, we've accumulated enough patients where we were able to come up with a bit of a scoring system. So we found that patients who had a ferritin of above 400, as well as a CRP above four, or in some people's units, it's 40, it depends on your hospital. But in those patients, those are the ones who are at higher risk. And so we started intervening earlier, trying different prophylaxis in those patients. In other diseases, it's more difficult because the patient numbers we have are smaller. And so, for example, we don't know in mantle cell lymphoma or in ALL necessarily who are the high risk patients. But, you know, as mentioned, sometimes you can just sort of, it's in the, the beholder of the treating physician. I think we can all identify what a low risk patient is, and we tend to leave those alone. But what exactly makes a patient high risk or not is, as you mentioned, you know, I, I don't want to add my name to it, but it's sort of a, it's not very easy to tell people what to do in that case. Yeah. Great. So to drill down a little bit, can you explain what tocilizumab is and how it works in CRS? Sure. So it's a really great story that I'm sure your listeners have heard uh, many times before, but tocilizumab was a drug that was used for rheumatoid arthritis, and it's an IL-6 receptor antagonist. And in some of the very early CAR T-cell trials, patients were getting very bad cytokine release syndrome. And one of the physicians who was involved had, a, I believe, a daughter who had rheumatoid arthritis and was receiving tocilizumab. And part of the translational arm of those studies, they were measuring IL-6 levels and found them to be very high. And so they treated the patient with tocilizumab and the CRS got better. So tocilizumab is an IL-6 receptor antagonist. And what you can see when that happens is typically you fairly efficiently see the fever go down. Whether or not the inflammatory markers continue to trend up after giving tocilizumab sort of depends on where the cytokine release syndrome is going, but it fairly efficiently improves fevers at least. And do you give just one dose or, and, and what dose do you use? And, and, and if not, how frequently do you, do you give it? Yeah. So speaking for adult patients, the dose of tocilizumab is pretty standard, eight milligrams per kilogram. That's capped at 800 milligrams for larger patients. And you can give it multiple times, but I tend to think that if I've given it twice, probably have gotten to the maximum that tocilizumab is going to give me. And that's when I typically move on to other things. So, you know, you give tocilizumab once, the fever comes back. If it comes back within 24 hours or so, you give a second dose. And usually I'll give a little bit of dex with it at that time, because I worry that the tocilizumab really hasn't dealt with the CRS very well. Once I'm beyond two or more doses of tocilizumab and you know, I've started them on steroids. That's when I'm starting to think about adding an additional therapy like anakinra, but also considering other etiologies for why they're having this tocilizumab resistant type of fever. Yeah, absolutely. And when, with the dexamethasone, what sort of dose and how often do you give that? Right. Yeah. Speaking as an adult physician, typically dexamethasone 10 milligrams times one at the same time as the tocilizumab. And then if I think that they need it more than just the one time, they need to be kind of treated with it in a blanketing kind of way, then you go up to Q6 hours. So they get a total of 40 milligrams of dexamethasone a day. 
And how long to continue it really depends on the patient's clinical status. Typically, I like to taper them off as quickly as possible, but you have to keep it on to manage the toxicity. And I think this has changed a bit in, in recent time, but initially there was kind of concern around using steroids, given that we know that they're, they're quite good at killing lymphocytes. How has that changed over time and what's the evidence kind of supporting or refuting the idea that you want to avoid steroids if you can? Yeah, so the whole field has moved, as, as you pointed out, I think in the original studies that were done, patients would have very high-grade toxicities and people would be very worried about giving them any kind of treatment because they wanted to preserve the efficacy of the CARs. And I think that was quite right in a lot of ways, because when we think about what we're trying to achieve with CAR T-cell therapy, we're really trying to achieve a long-term durable remission of the person's underlying malignancy. And so I think sometimes we lose sight of that, that that's really the, the toxicity that might be short-term or, or go away is something that we're managing, but really what we want is a long-term efficacy. But I think the field has become more and more comfortable with the idea that low, you know, sort of short-term treatment with steroids or tocilizumab doesn't impact the cars all that much. And people are willing now to intervene at earlier and lower toxicities, as well as even consider prophylaxis to try and prevent these CAR T-cell toxicities. I think this is largely because what determines our overall outcome after CAR T-cell therapy, part of it may be related to CAR T-cell expansion, but it may also be related to tumor biology and other factors that you know, patients were or weren't going to respond to the CAR T-cells anyway, and sparing them some toxicity does make sense. So still, as you can hear from my answer, there's still some concern. I think that I really want to maximize their CAR T cell efficacy, but I don't want to subject them to undue toxicity. One of the other things to consider is that, you know, this was seen on the Zuma 1 clinical trial where they waited a really long time to give steroids. Patients got enormous doses of steroids for a really long time. And then in subsequent cohorts where they tried to intervene a little bit earlier, even though they were intervening earlier with steroids or tocilizumab, the overall total amount of steroids that any patient received was much, much less. So there may be a confounder here where if you intervene early on with steroids, then you don't have to give so much steroid later on. And it's unclear what then matters for toxicity. Is it the total dose of steroids that you get over time? Or is it, did you intervene early and kind of suppress expansion? Or does none of it matter? And the patients who are going to have a good response to CAR T-cell therapy are going to have it either way. And these are still unknowns. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I was taught about haploidentical transplants, there's this kind of, and, and using and post-transplant cyclophosphamide, there's this like, don't go near the steroids until the day three cyclophosphamide's gone in, but uh, for, for that reason. So I think it's interesting to see how different kind of fields think about similar problems. So we talked a bit about grade two CRS, and you started to venture into your territory of what you do if the TOSI plus steroids is not working. So I want to ask you about that and bundle it in with how do you manage grade three CRS as well? Right. So grade three CRS, thankfully, we're seeing less of it in, than we used to. I think part of it is because CAR T-cell therapy is now approved in the second line for large B-cell lymphoma. Part of it is because we do a lot of things in the front end to try and prevent patients from coming to us with really large tumors and, and being very sick. There are a lot of other therapies, for example, for lymphoma that our armamentarium has gotten better to control disease coming into it. So I think that in general, we see a lot less of severe CRS than we used to, but we still see it and it's still there. And so for grade three CRS, I think, again, there are two drugs, use them. So if you haven't used TOSI, give it. If you're giving steroids, escalate them. Typically, we will indeed escalate to pulse methylprednisolone if patients have neuron pressors or are having severe organ injury. 
I don't love it, but we do it. And more and more, as I mentioned in the How I Treat article that we just wrote with Melody Smith and Raleigh Shaw, people are moving sooner and sooner now to anakinra in these cases. If patients are not responding to TOSI and a couple doses of DEX and they still have severe toxicity, then why not intervene with anakinra to try and bring down the severe CRS? And can you explain what anakinra is and what your experience has been like? Is it sort of similarly transformational in, in wiping out these severe cases of CRS? Sure. So anakinra is an, is an IL-1 antagonist. And IL-1 is a cytokine like IL-6 that can be implicated in the pathophysiology of both CRS and ICANs. And it's another drug that people are using. It hasn't been tested in a really rigorous way to truly feel strongly that it improves outcomes in, in these severe CRS cases. As mentioned, some of the risk factors for severe CRS are similar to the risk factors for having a poor lymphoma outcome or, or other diseases. And so it's a bit difficult to say exactly how strongly anakinra is useful for CAR T-cell therapy, but in general, we use it as sort of our third line therapy. And we do think that it you know, reduces the extent and duration of severe toxicity. Great. That's a really nice kind of practical summary of, of if you have, if you've got drugs, then, then use them. It's a, it's a good approach. So I had one quick question before we went into ICANS. Uh, let's say you have a patient with like refractory grade 2 CRS or grade 3 CRS, would you rather switch them to anakinra or would you try like pulse solumetrol one gram daily? I remember from your presentation that you don't like doing pulse solumetrol, but I really wanted to get your thoughts on that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's different camps in terms of, is there really a difference between 40 milligrams of dexamethasone and a thousand milligrams of solumetrol? How many steroid hormone receptors do we have in our body that can be <laughs> attacked? But I think more and more, there's no wrong answer. It's okay. You know, if a patient is really sick, you, you do what you can. But I think more and more we're moving earlier on to anakinra. I, I did want to say one other thing about anakinra, which is that there is a concern that these patients are on tocilizumab and steroids and are neutropenic and so many things going on. We worry a lot about their risk of infections, particularly fungal infections. And so depending on your institutional guidelines, we tend to upgrade their antifungals at that point. And so if they're on fluconazole, we bring them up to voriconazole. If they have liver issues or other reasons why we don't think they should get voriconazole, then we put them on mycofungin. Posaconazole is another uh, good azole for that. So we really do upgrade their anti-infectious prophylaxis in these cases. Yeah, that's very helpful. So now we'll switch gears and move to ICANS. So the same patient that we had discussed before, above with grade 2 CRS, let's imagine that he got TOSI and the CRS completely resolved. And now on day plus five on rounds, he's noted to have confusion and a decreased conscious state, but awakens to voice. He's otherwise moving all extremities and there are no reports of any seizure-like activity. And you're concerned about ICANS given this picture. So can you walk us through your thought process in this situation and how do you approach a patient with suspected ICANS? Yeah, so I would say that for me as the attending physician, usually people have already done the ICE scores and things like that. But that's the other thing that the ASTCT guidelines, you know, in conjunction with the prior CARTOX working group out of MD Anderson came up with, which is that, look, ICANS is not subtle. You don't need a neuropsychologist to make the diagnosis. You know, you can ask some fairly simple questions, and if patients can answer these questions, it really does stratify how severe their neurologic toxicity is going on at that moment. And so, as you pointed out, there's something called the ICE score, which, you know, where are you? You name some objects, you 
do some fairly simple things. You serially subtract tens from a hundred. I always like to joke that, you know, in the greatest generation, it used to be subtracting by sevens, the, the post-war older people. And now we're each year that passes, we're worse at math. And now we can only subtract by 10, but it kind of also, also tells us, look like I can't is not subtle. And so we really take the ice score seriously to grade these patients for how severe their ICANS is. Now, in this circumstance, you know, it's classic ICANS, I think, the way you've described it. And so that's when we start to think about whether we're going to work up these patients additionally or whether we'll just start dexamethasone and hold tight and, and see what happens. Yeah, so wanted wanted to ask a follow-up question that what is your threshold to do additional workup, like a brain imaging or a lumbar puncture, for example? Right. So in most cases, this workup is not incredibly helpful. I mean, the types of things that you see on brain imaging really depend on your center. Some radiologists can really squint and make out some changes. Some radiologists don't really see any changes on the MRI, even with severe ICANs. What it's good for is ruling out things like if a patient has had a stroke or some other cause of their decreased neurologic function. But I tend to save that for when the patient isn't responding as I had hoped to the therapy. So I may not move to MRI right away. It's not necessarily day one, the biggest priority. LPs can be useful. You know, the thing that you're mostly seeing there is that there's increased protein levels in the cerebral spinal fluid. And the higher the protein levels there sometimes is related to the extent of ICANs. Obviously, LPs also give you an opening pressure, but at least at our center where they're done by interventional radiology, they don't position the patients properly to truly measure the correct opening pressure. And so it can be very misleading. I remember a case where the interventional radiology opening pressure was like 30. And then we had a neurosurgeon come in and and put in an EVD and the pressure was nine all weekend. And so I think that that can lead to overtreatment if you misinterpret the opening pressures. So even there, we tend to try not to worry too much about that outside of if they have very specific clinical symptoms. Um, And then on the LP, you may see other things like viruses or um, leptomeningeal spread of their cancer, things like that. But typically, I reserve these types of interventions or these tests for patients who are just not responding to the initial therapy the way that I expect them to. All right. So often these patients, as you know, they can also be quite unwell with other concomitant illness, for example, sepsis. Are there any telltale signs that help you to differentiate from between ICANS and, let's say, delirium from sepsis. Right. I think that one of the ones that's actually hard to differentiate is CRS uh, induced delirium from ICANS. And, you know, often this happens that you have an older patient, perhaps 75 years old, and they get CRS and then they're a bit delirious and their word finding is off and they may not score that well on the ICE score. And in those cases, oftentimes people want to give these patients steroids because they say, oh, they have ICANS. But the thing to know about ICANS is that the typical course is that it starts a couple of days later after the CRS. It's usually not happening immediately in conjunction with the CRS. Now, not, not always, so it's not a perfect rule, but I get quite suspicious when someone has ICANS at the same time as having a fever. That's what makes me think, okay, look, are they having sepsis? Are they having concomitant CRS? You know, should we be doing things to treat the fever that would then improve their overall ICANS? So we can't throw our internal medicine knowledge out the window here. Patients can have decreased level of consciousness for medical reasons that are unrelated to the CAR T cells. Yeah, I certainly remember... um seeing patients in the middle of the night, asking them to write the sentence that they have to write and then being very fed up with me because they've been asked to write the sentence many times. And it can be very difficult, even as a resident at 2am to work out what's ICANS and what's delirium. And that, that tip around the fever is very helpful. 
Yeah. We actually talked a lot about the clinical, but we'll uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about pathophysiology now. So are there any differences in pathophysiology between ICANS and CRS and any, any difference in uh, the predictors of ICANS, and C- ICANS versus CRS? Sure. So I think that ICANS is uh, seen to the greatest extent with CD19 cars. There's this theory that there are these cells that are around the walls of the blood vessels that express CD19, and and these may be impaired in ICANS. I'm not sure if that's entirely the reason, but definitely we see a much greater amount of ICANS with these CD19 cars than we do with BCMA cars or, or other cars. The other aspect is that severe neurologic toxicity, although it definitely happens with 4MBV products, it's not nearly as common as it is with CD28 co-stimulated products. Is there a difference between the pathophysiology of CRS and ICANS? You know, when we think about the pathophysiology of ICANS, we really think that the cytokines are causing the blood-brain barrier to become more leaky or permeable, and, and then encephalopathy occurs secondary to that. There may be in very severe cases where if you look at autopsies and that, there's um, a coagulopathic issue going on and you can see problems with fibrinogen, et cetera, perhaps also at at lower grades. It's difficult to say. But clinically, you know, one of the difficulties in teasing out the risk factors for CRS and ICANS is that severe ICANS is just so much more common than severe CRS. So if you're running a retrospective study and, you know, 5% of patients have severe CRS and 30% of patients have severe ICANS, you're just naturally going to find different risk factors for them. So I'm unsure how much of the, the differences in the literature for those two things are related to sort of the frequency of these events, more so than the actual underlying pathophysiology. But but all the things that you talked about, um, you know, people can, you can look at the relevant literature and, and think that they may be at risk of ICANS. Yeah. Let's now move to talk about how you manage ICANS. Our patient that we described before has an ICE score, based on his ICE score, has grade two ICANS. What's your approach to that in terms of medication dose frequency and what's your threshold for escalating treatment? Sure. So I think that I am, I'll say something somewhat controversial or I'm not sure. In my heart, I'm not sure how much steroids really does to treat ICANS. I'm not sure that anything does all that much to treat ICANS other than time. So when I give talks, I like to put up a slide where it says, what is your preferred management of ICANS? And on one side is the picture, the famous Edward Munch, the scream, you know, and then the other side is the melting clocks of Salvador Dali, the persistence of memory. So I think that if you can get away with it, time is always your best treatment for ICANS. You just got to wait it out. And being really aggressive can lead you down a path of really long-term prolonged steroids, weeks of prolonged steroids, escalating these therapies for patients who might just get better on their own if you gave them the same amount of time. So I would always encourage people to think, okay, whatever I'm doing, I should really think that time may be as good or better than the thing that I'm doing that I'm considering to escalate. But it's true that obviously if patients have ICANs, you know, grade two or higher, we're starting them on dexamethasone. They get 10 milligrams every six hours. But if their ICANs is not getting worse, if it's kind of staying the same, then I like to start tapering it because I'm really worried about them getting really severe ICANs or worsening. I'm not so worried if they're sitting pleasantly kind of confused for a few days you know, that probably is safer from an infectious and from a debilitation standpoint than high-dose steroids for a long time. So if things are not going in the wrong direction, then I like to taper the steroids. If they are going in the wrong direction, then yeah, we're reaching for Anakinra and, and those things again. And yeah, sure, we might escalate to pulse solumedrol if things are, are going really poorly, but it's hard to really know in a lot of cases if things are getting worse or not. I mean, you know, we, we spend a lot of time sort of shuffling anti-seizure meds, but 
a lot of those can also cause delirium or also cause polypharmacy related issues that can add on top of the, the problems that they're having. You know, some of these changes that we see on EEGs that are not clearly seizures, but are these changes that we're seeing really meaningful or should we just wait? And so I'm a waiter. I like to wait, but certainly you may want to intervene if things are not going the right way. And Another intervention you may consider, though, is that's when you break out the MRI and the LP and infectious workup and just make sure that there's nothing else going on that you could reverse. And a quick follow-up question. Does Anakinra cross the blood-brain barrier? Oh, man, you guys ask me hard questions. I'm not sure that that's the case. Does it? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure because it's used for ICANS, right? So I, I would imagine maybe it will. it does, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know the story around IL-6, right? And so some people believe that when you give tocilizumab, because it's a receptor inhibitor, an IL-6 receptor inhibitor, and that the antibody itself does not cross the blood-brain barrier, that what you're doing is you're mopping up the receptor and then that allows free IL-6 to go to the brain. And this is one of the justifications that various groups like Fred Hutch and others will give 10 milligrams of dexamethasone at the same time as tocilizumab. Or some people were early on proponents of siltuximab, which is an IL-6 direct inhibitor. Now, I don't know the details of that for the IL-1 exactly. In general, if you can reduce the cytokine levels overall, at least either over time or in the short term, you will reduce sort of the cytokine effects on the brain. Yeah. You said you like mostly like to wait, but if things are really going badly in terms of someone's conscious state, what do you reach for? Yeah, so we'll do all the stuff. We'll increase the, to go to pulse solumedrol and we'll add anakinra. Then we start hemming and hawing. Should we do something that's anti-car, right? And so things like desatinib or other inhibitors like that, that we think we can pause the cars. You know, some people have done cyclophosphamide or ATG. There's some, an interesting report out of Wisconsin where they were giving intrathecal chemotherapy to try and specifically decrease the cars in the CSF. So that, that could be tried. But in general, I think that approaches that are going to reduce the cars are unlikely to be extremely effective unless it's the cars specifically driving the toxicity. But as I mentioned, it's all these other cells in the body that are amplifying and probably driving the toxicity independent of the car at some point. And I think that eliminating the cars rarely gives you the effect that you're looking for, even in some of these novel cars that have kill switches. It doesn't seem like you can just flip the switch and suddenly the toxicity goes away. So that's a kind of great summary of escalating treatments for severe ICANs, are there any kind of novel agents that are being tested for either CRS or ICANs that, that you're particularly optimistic about or that you think will have a role? Desatinib, ibrutinib, ruxolitinib, any, anything else that's on your kind of hot to watch list? Yeah, so I think it's really hard to do a study of this particular issue. We've tried to define what is, for example, steroid refractory CRS or steroid refractory ICANs and what is the optimal manage management of that. But a lot of times it would be hard to put these patients in a clinical trial because they're so sick and enrolling them quickly would be quite challenging. And so, you know, the literature kind of remains at sort of the things that I talked about, which are mostly anecdotal or, or some cases. And so I, th I think all those things are interesting. As I mentioned, intrathecal therapies are interesting. Dasatinib is particularly interesting. But in general, I think that these approaches are something we talk about a lot, but unlikely to move the needle entirely on how CAR T-cell toxicity is managed. I really think the things that you do before you get to that point are probably the most interesting. And so I think about novel ways to do prophylaxis in high-risk patients and things like that might be more fruitful than really developing the, the best therapy possible to treat this very small cohort of very severe patients. 
All right. In, in the interest of time, we'll move next to hematotoxicity. So as you know, cytopenia, particularly neutropenia and thrombocytopenia can be a challenge following CAR T-cell therapy. And sometimes it can even be prolonged, for example, more than 30 days or even more than 90 days. So in what settings do you use growth factor like filigrastim post-CAR-T? Yeah, so I think early on, there was some controversy about whether or not you should give GCSF after CAR-T cell therapy. I think there's another cytokine that's related called GMCSF that likely is related to CAR T cell toxicity. It goes up with CAR T cell toxicity. It, it can cause problems. But for GCSF, it's not really clear. And the thought was, look, if I'm going to stimulate all these myeloid cells, and I think that these granulocytes are related to the toxicity, I may worsen CRS. I think by and large, those concerns have mostly gone away. I know there, there are centers that give Nulasta early on in CAR T cell therapy, big centers. And they don't seem to have very many problems with that. And so, again, I tend to be a, a person who waits to see if the toxicity is going to resolve. But I think that the, there could be a role for filgrastim early on. But I, I think that in general, for most patients, they don't really need it. Um, we've been doing a lot of work. I work with a group in Europe that has devised something called the CAR hematotox score. And so what that is, and we found that it's true across myeloma and DLBCL and mantle cell lymphoma, is that... Basically, what your CBC is, your hemoglobin, platelets, and neutrophil count, and what your ferritin and CRP are, determine whether or not you're likely to have long-term cytopenias after CAR T-cell therapy. And maybe this is just derivative. I was talking to David Miklos, who's the chair at Stanford, and he told me, look, you've got low counts going in, you'll have low counts going out. But what we showed is that this CAR hematotox score fairly efficiently predicts who's going to get severe infections. And so I think that that's really what you're trying to prevent is severe infections, not just a, a number that's there. And so there may be interesting ways to tailor antibiotics around patients who have lower high hematotox scores going into CAR T cell therapy. So the CAR hematotox score, it's applicable to all malignancies like myeloma, lymphoma, or is, was it developed in a particular malignancy mostly? Yeah, we developed it in large cell lymphoma, but we've tested it in myeloma and mantle cell lymphoma. So that appears to be to hold true. I, I don't know about pediatrics or BALL or other ones, but at least for, for those three malignancies, it appears to fairly efficiently divide patients who are likely to get an infection or not. What's your, with the CAR-hematotox score, what, what do you augment if they're high risk going into their CAR-T? Yeah, so far we haven't come up with a really good study to, to stratify these patients in that way. But one of the approaches that we're thinking about, at least, is for the low-risk patients, maybe we don't need to be giving them so many antibiotics. We tend to give them prophylactic antibiotics when they start, and then we give them antibiotics when they get their first fever, Piptazo or Cefepime. And all of this, we think, is probably pretty hard on their microbiomes, for example, or at the very least is bad for their antibiotic stewardship. And what was interesting to me when we did these studies with Europe was that there were some centers that weren't doing any prophylaxis whatsoever. And these patients only had more infections if they had a high CAR hematotox score. If you had a low CAR hematotox score, it didn't matter if you gave prophylaxis or not. So I think that what we need to do to start off with is say, hey, like, let's take these low-risk patients who have short durations of neutropenia, and maybe we can give them less antibiotics. Maybe we don't need to treat every single CRS fever as if it's sepsis and give them broad spectrum antibiotics. But as they say, this is not medical advice. This is something that we're trying to, to understand a little bit better. All right. So there are, as you know, some studies suggesting stem cell boost can be helpful in this setting too. In myeloma, for example, there have been some studies, I think, from Mount Sinai. Have you tried this approach? And if so, what is your threshold to use stem cell boost? 
Yeah, so there was always a proportion of patients that had really long-term cytopenias. I can tell you that my record for a patient needing was transfusion dependent was nine months after CAR T-cell therapy. And they eventually recovered their counts and are no longer transfusion dependent. And this is probably a worse problem in myeloma than it is even in lymphoma. So there are these patients who have really long-term cytopenias that are a real problem. And although you can wait them out, nine months is a long time. And that's a lot of patients going back and forth to the hospital. And it's a real burden on them. And not to mention the infectious risks and, and other things. So stem cell boost is really interesting because all the other things I tried, I got on the bandwagon and we sometimes we tried steroids or cyclospora, treating it like aplastic anemia or the TIPO agonists and plate. None of that, in my experience, had any effect on these cytopenias. It, it seemed to me that the bone marrow was injured and it was nothing like aplastic anemia and you couldn't just support your way out of it. And so that's why stem cell boost is so fascinating to me. A few groups, including this group that I work with in Germany, if patients had leftover stem cells from a prior autologous stem cell transplant and they had cytopenias after CAR-T, they would just infuse the leftover cells and lo and behold, these cytopenias went away. And I think mechanistically, that's pretty interesting because if you think that the cytopenias are being caused by a long-term effect of CARs or something else that's an ongoing active process, probably that wouldn't be rescued by a stem cell boost. You know, certainly aplastic anemia isn't rescued by just a pure stem cell boost. And so I think that just pathophysiologically, that's really interesting. In terms of therapy, yeah, it seems to work really well. And there's now some reports in myeloma and from multiple groups showing that this approach works. The problem is that it's just very few patients who have stored stem cells. Now that lymphoma has moved to second line and others, patients don't even have an opportunity to collect stem cells. Lymphoma patients don't necessarily, when you try to do mobilization for their stem cell transplant, you may not get such an abundant number of cells that you're going to have left over that you've stored. But in the myeloma space, this is really can be really helpful because a lot of centers have been mobilizing patients for two transplants for a long time. And then they get their first transplant, they relapse, and then they never get back to that second bag. And so they may have leftover cells that can be used in this context. So I think it's really fascinating. Others have proposed that we should be mobilizing patients to have something there for them in case they get these cytopenias. And I think these are all good questions. Yeah, maybe like myeloma and lymphoma in future, after six cycles of Archa, maybe mobilize everybody and just keep it in store. By the way, I just looked up for Anakin, right? Looks like it has been shown to cross blood-brain barrier in non-human primates in a dose-dependent manner, but I don't know what the data in humans is. But as you said, it's probably because of the decreased cytokine burden overall that it leads to decreased ICANs and CRS. So the last thing we wanted to ask you about is hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH, that is increasingly described after CAR T-cells. Are there particular CAR T-cells that it, where it's more common and when does it typically develop? Yeah, so Neurali Shah at the NCI recently is leading a group through ASTCT. I'm part of this group that's looking at what we decided to name immune effector cell hyperinflammatory HLH-like syndrome. And we thought about a bunch of different names like CAR HLH and other things, but settled on this IECHS name. And the reason is that um, we don't want people to immediately think about HLH every single time a patient gets CAR T-cell therapy, because the truth is that most of the HLH that, that people are attributing is really just CRS. It's really just severe CRS, and it, it should be managed like CRS. But there's a few circumstances where we're now starting to see an HLH-like syndrome that appears to be different than CRS. And so one of the best ways to think about this, and, and this is in the recent white paper for ASTCT that you can all take a look at that has Nirali Shaw as the senior author, is looking at the timing of when the HLH occurs. And if the HLH is occurring really like at the same time as CRS, it's CRS. 
the closer it is to the CRS, the more, you know, you should think about it like CRS. But what, what's happened is that there's a certain CAR T-cell target, CD22, that people have been testing in BALL as well as in lymphomas. And it seems like that a proportion of these patients will get this HLH-like syndrome with high liver transaminases and fevers and cytopenias, kind of in the much later than and in the absence of normal CRS-type symptoms. And so that sort of brought about this idea that there's this HLH-like syndrome that can occur prominently in these CD22 cars. We do think it also occurs in, in myeloma in some cases, so, but usually it's a bit closer to the CRS, so maybe a few days later. And there's a really nice paper by Sandy Wong at UCSF that showed that actually these could just be treated with anakinra, and it, it didn't seem to worsen patients' long-term outcome if you treated this type of HLH. Um, but the most important thing I want to say about HLH is that the purpose of this paper is not for everyone to think about HLH all the time. It's to think that HLH is really rare, and what you're looking at is probably not HLH. And what it usually is, is either CRS or the cancer that you have relapsing sooner than you, know, you would want it to or infections of different types. And it's the workup when you see an HLH-like syndrome to look for all these other things that's the most important aspect of this. Unless, of course, you happen to be on a trial of CD22 cars and you're a few weeks out. Yeah, I think that's a great message to end on that in this particular case, actually, the guideline is intended to make people think less about HLH, not more. So that's that's kind of great um, inside baseball goss to know. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane, for coming on Blood Cancer Talks. We've been delighted to, to have you on board and hope to get you back another time to talk about something else. So thanks very much. Well, thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.